Welcome to the Wander Learn podcast. I'm going to be interviewing the famous Gary Arndt from Everything and Everywhere. He is a superb travel blogger. He's one of the first. And we talk about lots of things about how he gets his flights and hotel bookings. What are his favorite travel apps? Does he consider himself a travel blogger or a photographer? What's the stupidest advice that he hears photographers give people that he disagrees with? What's his dream ultralight camera? What does he think of Instagram? What's the difference between Instagram and Pinterest and how does he use it? What does he think about AR, augmented reality and virtual reality? Does he think there's a future for that? Um, What does he give advice for people who are thinking about starting a travel blog and where should they put their eggs and where should they concentrate? Does he read fiction, nonfiction? What about his podcasting? He talks about how he gets through his emails in his inbox and how he decides whether to say no to somebody or yes because he seems to do so many things at once. It's amazing. So we dive into the mind and the work that Gary does for everything and everywhere. Welcome to the Wander Learn podcast. I'm here with Gary Arndt from Everything and Everywhere. Welcome, Gary. Thanks for having me. We've met in San Francisco, and I've always noticed that whenever I'm in conversations with you, you're just a very authentic, blunt, honest guy. And also when you listen to some of your podcasts, when you listen, uh, when you do your podcast show with uh, Jen Leo and Chris Christensen, uh, the, the weekly travel show, which never happens weekly, right? That you're very honest and direct and blunt. And I love that about you. Is that a, just a Midwestern thing? Is that uh, something from Minnesota? Definitely not a Minnesota thing. Most Minnesotans, they're known <laughs> for uh, what's called Minnesota nice which is basically being passive aggressive, mm. which is something I absolutely hate. Okay. So it does, <laughs> okay. definitely doesn't come from that. Uh, I don't know. It's just, it's just who I am. Okay. Um, it has some, it's pluses okay. and it's, it's minuses. I, I tend to be very bad with people. Like I'm not very diplomatic. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times right. it's like, oh, you shouldn't have said that. It's like, well, they suck. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. And <laughs> Exactly. Well, I mean, it's really useful, I think, also from a travel perspective, because you come back and you'll just say that you don't like this about a country and you don't care if it's politically incorrect or not. I don't usually say a lot of that about countries. I think you could say that about a hotel, an airline, maybe a city. But I always hate lumping an entire country together, unless it's a really tiny country. Because there's, even for a moderately sized country, there are usually, you know, a a lot of diversity. So you can go to a major city and maybe not like that city. And then you get out of the city and it's a completely different experience. So, you know, I I try not to paint with too broad of a brush because I think that's a mistake a lot of people make. You know, they, they have a bad experience. They go to Mexico and they go to Tijuana and they say, well, this happened to me in Mexico. I hate Mexico. I hate Mexicans. It's like, no, that was just Tijuana and that, you know, may have just been a fluke thing. Exactly. It could be a fluke thing. In other words, it just comes down to the people you meet. You might have met the store clerk who was having a bad day and then the store clerks are rude to you. And then you just had the bad luck to meet the bus driver who is also having a bad day. And then all of a sudden that that was the totality of your, you know, two thirds of your experiences. So (laughs) voila, you, you conclude the whole Yeah, and you know, I've been, and I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. You go to the same place twice, and you have a completely different experience based on who you meet, the weather, yep. the festivals that are going on, or, or whatever. And so if you just evaluated the place based on your first visit, uh, it wouldn't be a very representative uh, view of the place. Yeah, that's true. And that makes job as a travel blogger, I think, kind of difficult. And I guess some cynics could just say, you know, you guys are full of shit. You know, you got, you're just making all these pontifications about certain places, even though, let's say, 
people like you and that are trying to be very careful about not making too many generalizations. At the same time, if you don't, you come off sounding like a pussy if you're all of a sudden saying, you know, oh, well, they're sometimes nice, they're sometimes bad, it's sometimes good, it's sometimes this. You're not really saying anything about anything because you're just trying to avoid a, a dogmatic, strong statement. And then, then you get faulted for that being too much of a generalist. So it makes it really hard as a, as a travel writer, I think. No? I, I think it's important to note that a travel writer is not a critic, right? We're not the same as a movie critic or a restaurant critic. And a lot of people want it to be that way, but it, it's not what it is, um, where you're trying to pass judgment on something. And a lot of people fault travel writing in general, whether it's magazines or online, for not saying anything negative. And I don't think saying something negative really helps someone. You know, let's say you go to a hotel in New York and it's a bad hotel. Well, there are 300 hotels in New York. And if I say this hotel is bad, Okay, I have now narrowed your choice of hotels from 300 to 299. I really haven't done much to help you. Whereas if I say this is a good hotel, you you might follow my advice and say, "Okay, I'll I'll think about staying here and I may have helped solve your problem of finding a hotel." Which is why I don't know if, you know, being negative or trying to do what, you know, other critics in other areas do in travel writing is necessary is necessarily productive. You, you know, I was listening sometime to Tim Ferriss's podcast and, you know, he, or his books and that kind of stuff. And he always has this whole idea of always trying to say no, 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 no to all sorts of things. And I, my very first interaction with you, Gary, was when I think you were just, I was just starting my blog. This was like 2006 or something like that, or 2007, I can't remember. And you were just allowing pretty much everybody who wanted to, who had a travel blog, to be linked to your site. And you didn't really seem to ask too many questions. You're just like, yeah, I'll link to your page from my page. And it was very open. And, and ever since then, and I was very impressed by that. You're just kind of like, you're said yes to that. And if I, you know, have ever sent you an email, boom, you answered it. And, and it posted anything on your Facebook wall, boom, you answered it. And I know a few years back, I heard you doing an interview where you were basically talking about the fact that you still pride that you don't that you answer every single one of your messages and you don't have a personal assistant or anybody answering it and you you're trying to keep that way as long as possible and not only that but you do it so quickly I mean it's amazing like I'll write to you and then boom is it just I'm lucky or am I on your VIP list or or I I get the impression you do this with Uh, everybody probably luck I mean if I'm sitting at my computer and an email comes in I found the most productive thing is just answer it immediately right to just send out yeah. a sentence. You and Chris, yeah, you and Chris Christensen. Do yeah, it the because same thing, yeah. you know, rather than let it pile up, if it's something that can be answered immediately, uh, the things that tend to pile up in my inbox are things that require me to make a decision, or they're asking something more of me, or I don't know what the hell to say. And and but if it's just, hey, can we do this? Sure, let's do it now. Boom, done. That that kind of stuff I can do very quickly. I do say no to most things from a business sense. So I get stuff every day in my inbox of people that want me to promote their product or their brand. And and I say no to pretty much everything. Um, But in terms of things like interviews, I have a general standing rule to never say no to an interview. Okay. And that's worth it. Yeah. And I'm not Tim Ferriss. So that's 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 a big difference. He probably gets an interview. (laughs) Yeah. That poor guy probably gets it. But even that, he does a lot of interviews as well. I mean, he has a book coming out. I I listen Mm -hmm. to a lot of podcasts, and then all of a sudden, Tim Ferriss appears as a guest on every podcast. And then he goes into Mm -hmm. hiding for a couple years, and 
then all of a sudden he makes appearances again. So how many emails do you have on your inbox roughly, like normally? Uh, right now I have maybe 20. Uh, are they, you mean unopened or just uh, sitting there? No, everything's okay. opened. Uh, most of them are, were in the middle of some sort of dialogue or something. So you do have almost like a zero inbox uh, wish and goal. Sometimes you achieve it. Yeah, it's just kind of hard. I mean, I got a couple things, two emails from 2017 still. One is a guy I keep putting off. He wants me to take a picture of all my camera gear and send it to him. I just never do it. And again, that's a request where it's like, I got to go and set up crap and take pictures hmm. and is this just a random fan or is it a business or no it's a guy with a website who focuses on like the gear that photographers carry and i'll probably do it eventually but it's just you know the more you're asking of me the more time it's going to take or i'm going to delete it i see and that's the other thing there's a lot of I, a lot of people that email me i will not especially if it's if they're just asking for something like hi gary i don't sure. know you i want something from you i'm not going to respond to that i'll just delete it mm -hmm. what if they is what if it's travel advice like some random person saying hey i'm going to be going to i don't know uh, thailand and can you tell me something about it or where yeah, I'll try to answer that if it's a legitimate travel question. Or what I try to do now is I refer them to my Facebook group, uh, which has become a really great source of people answering questions because it's not just me. Because I don't care how traveled, well-traveled anybody is, um, there's always going to be, if you're in a well-traveled group of people, somebody probably has been, you know, everywhere where it's hard for one person to do it, right? Right. Yeah. And then also just not everybody's going to hold the same opinion, which is kind of what we alluded to before. Um, so talking about your, your travel, your photography gear, let's talk a little bit about your favorite travel apps and your favorite travel gear and that kind of stuff. So let's get down to the practical stuff. Uh, do you have, uh, you know, your top five, top three, whatever travel apps that you that really, really, when you reset your phone or buy a new phone, which are the ones you jump to and make sure they're on your phone? Uh, nothing, nothing fancy. I think the whole travel app thing, you know, there are people that just love writing articles and, you know, top travel apps. No, there's, there's no new travel app that I have, you know, really found. It's Google Maps, TripIt. What about for your uh, booking? How do you book airline flights or hotels? What do you use? Uh, you know, I guess I have various apps for loyalty okay. programs for like airlines and stuff. Right. I, I usually won't do that on my phone. I'll do it on my phone sometimes if I'm on a road trip or something and I'm pulling into a town. Uh, but flights, pretty much never. I'll do that on my on my computer. And um, what are your favorite uh, top two sites that you go? Uh, it depends. Uh, lately, I've been booking directly with uh, the airlines themselves. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, do you find it's, it's a bit cheaper? or? Well, I might do a search on Expedia or something. Um mm. There's some other things I've signed up to, like, you know, discount flights. I live in Minneapolis and pretty much everything for a lot of, you know, all those deals, everything is orientated towards like the major markets like New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco. Right. Um, so there's some stuff here. So if I need to go to a certain place, I can always check to see if there's any deals or, or discounts on particular airlines, but a lot of times I don't have any choice because I'm working with another company or a destination and they're flying me out. So they just handle the tickets. Okay. So you don't have really any big travel apps or even travel websites uh, that you're kind of going to. What about gear? Um, I know you, I think it was called a Scott jacket or something like that. You had a jacket that you're, you're promoting here. They were either sponsoring you or something, but you, I, obviously you liked it too. 
uh, Scotty vest. That's right. Um, yeah, they they basically have a whole line of clothes, not just you know jackets and stuff, uh, that basically are designed for travel. Uh, primarily, they just have a lot of pockets, so they can fit you know your your cell phone or a Kindle or an iPad, uh, you know your earbuds, a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, it's very handy for going through airports because you just stuff all your crap in your jacket, and then you just take your jacket off, put it through the X-ray machine. You don't have to deal with a lot of things, um, but yeah. But they don't they want the laptop to come out of the jacket? Uh, well, the laptop. My laptop is usually my bag. Oh, okay. So and you that, if you have TSA pre-checked, then you don't need to take your laptop out. That can just go right through. Okay. So then, uh, what other gear? So you still use the Scotty vest, and you're still a big fan. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have Scotty vest pants, uh, even some T-shirts and stuff. Um, yeah, they, they make really good stuff. I'm not working with them as an ambassador anymore, but I still use their gear. Okay. What what other travel gear that you're kind of like, if you have to go minimalist and you definitely grab besides that vest and your underwear? <laughs> if it's totally minimalist, man, I, you know, I'm a big believer. You really only need three things to travel and that's becoming one thing. And, and the big thing is, you know, a credit card, your cell phone and a passport. Right. And with my recent, I, I recently, my last trip to London and my last trip to Canada, I managed to not take out any cash and I was able to pay for everything with my phone using wow. Apple Pay. Where was this in Canada? Yeah. So pretty much everywhere in Canada, I was able to use it. The world. Um, I'm not saying it's, it's universal yet, but it's, it's getting pretty ubiquitous, especially That's in major amazing. cities. And it really solves that problem. And it, you know, the problem's kind of been solved. You, you, I'm sure you've had the problem with American credit cards that we didn't have the chip and now we finally do have the chip, but it's not a chip and pin. It's a chip and sign. Uh, Apple pay just, just solves all that problems. And it's actually far more secure than using a credit card because you don't expose your number. It uses a one-time hash for every transaction. Uh, and it's just, it's quick. You hold your phone up to it. You put your thumb on it, beep done. Wow. That's it. There are many airports in the U S that are now using a uh, mobile passport. So basically you put your passport information in an app and then you can go to a kiosk and scan it, and it's just as quick as global entry, and you just you just That's walk right amazing. through. So, uh, and I think Delaware just announced they're starting a beta program for uh, putting a driver's license in your phone. Hmm. So we're really getting to the point quickly where. If you have your phone, that's all you right. need. And I wrote an article on this several years ago about how you only need those three things. And people snarkily pointed out, well, you need a charging cable. Well, you don't need that anymore either because they now have wireless charging in the newest phones. And assuming you were to you know, go to a hotel or something that had like a wireless charging pad, of which I have not seen these in hotels yet, but I'm, I'm certain they're going to start rolling out, uh, you will be able to put a phone in your pocket and uh travel internationally right and just the cable let's say the just the usb cable a lot of most airlines they you can plug in the usb cable right um the only catch right now is i don't know of any other countries that would let you use a mobile passport for entry i think that new zealand and australia were testing something like that but you know if you think about it what is a passport it's really a number you know that 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 part on the bottom of your passport that they actually scan is just, you know, um, name, birth date, passport number. That That's easily done, you know, through something like an app. It could very easily be done. There's really no need to have the, the physical 
you know, book and the stamps. So I could very easily see in the not so far future where there's some sort of international standard where countries agree to how they could have uh, a mobile device function as a passport. So yeah, long story short, smartphone is the number one thing. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, uh, by the way, for uh, people who are listening to this, I'm in Cameroon and I haven't left Africa in five years. And so if you're wondering, while well, I'm so amazed by all this Apple Pay stuff, because of course in Africa, there's no such thing as Apple Pay at this point in 2018. Um, you just, I've never seen anything like Samsung Pay or any of this digital paying. I would, I would, if I could say, hey, at the same time though, they do have, uh, I should be cognizant of the fact that in, in Kenya, for example, and in Tanzania, they do have M-Pesa and, and certain uh, mobile paying systems. Uh, but they just don't use the American system yet. So they have certain countries, they'll, they'll, they'll have that. But it's very few. Out of the 54 African countries, digital pay is maybe in five countries, you know, South Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, and maybe a, couple, a few others. But it's changing. It's slowly changing. I think, you know, over the next five to 10 years, any place that accepts a credit card will be able to accept that. Right. It's just the problem is they don't accept credit cards in probably, well, yeah. I would say 30 out of the 54 countries. I mean, the majority of countries, they, you just can't use a credit card in Africa. They just, they, if you show it, you're like, Hey, can I buy it? I'm, did I tell you this Gary, that when I bought my car, I bought a car for $30,000 and it was, I had to pay in cash because <laughs> I was in Benin and they wouldn't take a credit card or even a wire transfer. <laughs> They're like, no, we just take cash. <laughs> I'm like, it's crazy. Right. But you know, like with a lot of uh, developing countries, they didn't go through a phase where they had wired phones. They just went from nothing to mobile devices, right? They just jumped right into the 21st century. And I, I could see that maybe being the same thing with like, uh, you know, they don't have credit cards. Every, you know, I wouldn't say everybody has a phone, but a lot of people have mobile phones in developing countries and they just go right to those form of payments. So maybe that's what happens. Right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And the same thing they're they're talking about the same thing with skipping the um, power line and going yeah. straight to solar or, you know, localized power. You know, that's the same thing, skipping that. So and, and they are doing that in certain areas. So in some ways, Africa can be the technology of vanguard. Now, now, do you consider yourself a travel photographer, a travel blogger? I mean, obviously, you're both. But do you I, I think correct me if I'm wrong, but I have a feeling, Gary, you started off as a travel blogger and then slowly over the years, you kind of morphed more into the, the photography side of yours. It became more and more important. Is that true? Yeah, I would say that's true. It really depends who I'm talking to. Um, if I'm talking to someone that really has no idea how any of this works, I just say I'm a photographer because it's a lot easier. They, they mm -hmm. understand taking pictures. And the moment you say you're a blogger, like, what's that? How do you make money? How does that work? Uh, so it, it's, <laughs> it's just easier. And I don't make, and I don't work like a normal travel photographer works. Most people envision, you know, you're working for National Geographic or you're on assignment. And I've never, ever worked on assignment for any publication. And mm -hmm. quite frankly, with a couple of exceptions, I really have no desire to do that. I would do it maybe for to, to, to be able to say I did it. You know, to work with National Geographic would be something you do to say that you worked with National Geographic. But it, I wouldn't do it for the money at this point. Yeah. And the blog. I don't even. I have no idea. I, they must pay well, though. On the other hand, none of the 
publications just don't pay that well in general anymore. And a lot of the big travel photographers I know, um, like the guys who've been doing this for decades and have shot for National Geographic and like all the big magazines, they are all envious of what I'm doing. Because, really? oh, oh, yeah, because I can make more money, I have more freedom, I have more control. Um, and but yeah. what's to stop them if they're a big time travel photographer or National Geographic photographer? What's to stop them from just trying to copy what you're doing? I think you get stuck. I mean, it's not like that hard to get an Instagram account. No, but it's hard to get a following, and it's a completely right. different model. And you know, like you were mentioning what I used to do with giving people links. Um, there is a notion of uh, give and take and sharing online. So I'm on your podcast right now. You've been on my podcast before, and that's just kind of what you do, right? Um, right. I'm, I'm very open with my photos. You can go to my website and see pretty much every photo I've ever taken. Like 50,000 of them are available online. The old model, these guys would look at what I was doing and think I was crazy because you don't do that. You you have to hold your stuff very tight. You have to own the rights, right? And you got to put that big fat watermark that yeah. nobody and looks I, at. I don't watermark <laughs> anything ever because right. it just makes them look bad. Um, and mm. so it's a very different mindset of how you, how you work online and, and how you grow an audience. And their whole business, their whole life was about uh, working with editors, pleasing editors, and, and doing it that way, never pleasing an audience. And same with travel writing. Whereas, you know, fundamentally, I'm a publisher when you get right down to it. Um, yep. So I have to think like a publisher in terms of, you know, circulation and my audience and all the, those other things that they never had to think about. And so it's a big mindset shift. There's a couple people who have done it. Um, but for the most part, you know, and also, you know, once you get to a certain age, you don't really want to do something brand new like that. So, right. yeah, it, I mean, they could yeah. do it, but it's a big, big shift. What's the stupidest advice that you hear some photographers give people out there that you kind of disagree with? Shoot in manual. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> photography is not rocket science. It really isn't. I am completely 100% self-taught. Never took a class, never had a mentor, never read a book, just figured it out. Um, and by the way, let me interrupt you, but uh, you have won several awards. Can you list some of the ones that you've most proud of? I've been named Travel Photographer of the Year by the Society of American Travel Writers. I was named Travel Photographer of the Year twice by the North American Travel Journalists Association. I've won three Lowell Thomas Awards. I've won a couple dozen like Natcha prizes for individual categories, uh, two Northern Lights awards for photographing Canada. Uh, yeah, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, right. So continue. So and with then there's a lot of photographers that like went to school to study photography. And I really think they overthink it. And, you know, the idea of shooting in manual, of controlling everything, as opposed to just shooting an aperture priority, you know, maybe that's great if you're using, you know, a silver-plated Ansel Adams-type camera or if you're in a studio or something. But for the most part, it's completely unnecessary. And I think they make it, you know, 
they have this notion of what a real photographer has to do as opposed to what you should do to just get a good photo, uh, which is really all that matters at the end of the day. It's not how you did it. You don't get points for creativity. So in, in you basically have what was the equivalent of a 1980 supercomputer in your camera, so you might as well take advantage of it and let it do some of the work if it can and just focus on the, the things that you know affect uh, artistically uh, how you want the shot to look. And so, well, I also think that the, the post-processing tools have come such a long way that you can really do a lot after you've taken the photo. For some things, um, like white, things like white balance, you can, you can affect, you can choose, or you can fix that, no problem. Um, you should do as much as you can in the camera, but you're right. You can, you can do a lot in post. Um, and a lot of people don't understand how that works. The, the term photoshopped has gotten a bad name because of the fashion industry because they would swap out body parts and make people thinner and, and do stuff like that. Uh, whereas in reality, most of the, the touching up you do in a photo is just things that you could have done in a dark room. Uh, shadows, highlights, contrast, color, sharpness, things like that. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, amazing. Now, what about your dream ultralight photography gear because one of the things i really hate about photography and i do more much more videos and i'm much more of a video guy than a photography guy but what i hate about both of these things is the weight of these things um is there i know you have a, i think you you bring like two lenses or something like maybe you bring three lenses uh three lenses travel. but i i don't really travel with a lot of gear currently uh i don't know if i'd want to get much lighter I have a Sony a7R2, which is my go-to camera, and I, I might swap that out for like a, a the the a7III at some point. Uh, but I have no real need to change. I carry an a6000, which is a very small camera as a backup, and I have three lenses. Um, so I really use about half a camera bag, and the rest I devote to just general electronics, my my computer, the wires, stuff like that. Okay, so you, you've gotten pretty minimalist. Most, I sh yeah, most travel photographers I know have a very similar gear setup. Uh, it changes a bit if you're going to go shoot wildlife because then you need some, some pretty long lenses, tripod, uh, and you can't do it quite as light. But if you're just going to go and just kind of generally shoot stuff and it's, it's not wildlife, yeah, you can get by pretty light. And like I said, most photographers, they may carry a few other lenses with them, um, but they don't go nuts because versatility and the ability to get the shot is more important than having the perfect lens and everything perfectly set up, um, which, you know, selecting the lens and getting it set up and everything may cause you to miss a shot. Right. Now, what is your pet peeve about Instagram? You've got to have some. Oh, there's a lot not to like about Instagram. Um, <laughs> I think it's become kind of its own thing. I, I think we've reached peak Instagram. I don't think, okay. I'm not saying it's going to go away or it's going to die, but I don't think it's going to get any bigger in terms of what it is. I think a lot of people, especially younger people, are obsessed with becoming Instagram famous. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of that has to do with the, how they view themselves. So if you look at my Instagram account, I've posted well over 2,000 photos, and I believe one of those photos, a single photo, has a picture of me in it. Everything else is 
just photos I've taken. And the majority of what you'd call the Instagram influencers all take pictures of themselves. And some mm -hmm. of them take it to an extreme where they're changing their clothes multiple times a day. And, you know, to a certain extent, I have to confess, it works. Uh, there is a certain yeah. demographic that just cares about clothing and stuff. Um, I don't think they really but even in But even in the travel, even in the travel place, you've got some... Uh sexy women who dress you know like in bikinis all the time and and that really seems to work for them well sure bikinis always help uh but i always question whether or not people are following it because of the destination they're wearing the bikini or the fact that they're wearing a bikini mm -hmm. um a really good example you know if, if you were probably to to the top of the totem pole in terms of instagram influencers is kim kardashian um you know, she has a, an enormous following and, you know, all the members of the Kardashian clan have been known to have sales spike of shoes or handbags or beauty products when they mention it on their Instagram account. Well, several years ago, Kim Kardashian went to Armenia uh, and she went there with uh, her husband, Kanye West, and I think Khloe Kardashian went there as well. So, you know, this is like a murderer's row of Instagram influencers going to Armenia. And everyone thought, oh my God, Armenia is going to get so much tourism because of this. Nope. Tourism didn't budge. Nobody went to Armenia. Interesting. Uh, and it, because nobody is following Kim Kardashian for travel advice. And the kind of person that's going to go to Armenia is probably not the kind of person that follows Kim Kardashian. And, right. and, I, well said. and I think a lot of marketing people are figuring this out that you know and the same thing happened when oprah went to australia you know she went she took her show to australia the last year she did her show and everyone's like oh this is incredible for australia tourism they're getting so much marketing and they spent millions of dollars to fly oprah out and the next year american tourism to australia dipped 0.8 percent um <laughs> because oprah's audience you know the people who are watching television in the middle of the day are not the kind to get on a 12 to 16 hour flight to go to Australia. They're going to go to Branson, Orlando, Las Vegas, wherever. They're not going to Australia. Right. Hold on one second. Um, Rejoice, can you turn on the fan? I'm going to edit this out, Gary, but uh, my, it's just too hot here. It's like, it's like 89 degrees and it's 5 a.m. <laughs> it's so hot here. It snowed here. Turn on the fan. It is snowing right now, and it's April. Amazing. <laughs> that is bullshit. So. I did not sign up for this. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know. Can you hear that fan too much? I'm going to edit out my voice most of the time when you're talking. I can just silence my voice. But can, I can you hear, hear that fan? It. Yeah, I can. You can? Okay. Well. It's, all right. We'll just we'll turn off the fan then. Suffer through the sauna what we do for good podcast audio. Okay, we'll continue. Um, okay, now, Gary, what's the difference between Instagram and Pinterest? I'd really, I just, these are two things. They seem to be, you know, are they worth, which one is worthwhile for a travel blogger? Uh, both, but for completely different reasons. They're totally different. So Instagram is a social platform. You post things, people follow you, they like it, they comment. You post the next thing. But you can't share it. Like, let's say if I see a great Instagram thing, I can't like republish it and say, hey, I want to share this with all my followers. 
Uh, not easily, no. That's not built in, but there are still people that kind of do it. Um, right. Pinterest. And that's another thing that pisses me off, by the way, that pisses me off about, uh, about Instagram is that I see some travel blogging accounts and they have some amazing, amazing professional photos. And I just, I, I'm almost certain that they haven't taken those photos. Probably not. I know there's right. a lot so of the, I mean, big accounts. There's no, I, mean, I wish somebody would say, hey, come on, you know, these photos I've taken versus, I mean, every photo in your in, in Instagram account is taken by you, Gary, right? You don't republish. Yeah, it's a point of pride. I, you right. know, I'm, I'm a photographer, but there are big accounts like Beautiful Destinations. Yeah, they just use other people's photos. Right. I mean, it's fine. Also, by the way, I have no problem with people using other people's photos if they credit the person who took it. Like Mostly they do. Geographic. Yeah, okay. well, like the, the, big, the big accounts do. Yeah, like National Geographic, they'll always credit people, which makes sense. Anyway, I'm sorry. I, I got you were about to talk about uh, Pinterest. Oh, and Pinterest is really a search engine. Uh, it's a search engine for for images. So it it your the fact that you have followers or all that stuff doesn't matter on Pinterest really at all. Um, so would you say that Pinterest is kind of like a competition to image.google.com? No, because it's a search engine for images where people upload the images particularly to Pinterest and they usually have text on the image. Um, mm. For most bloggers, Pinterest is the number two source of traffic after Google. Wow, really? Oh, yes. Not even close. Mm. I, I, you know, Google is number one by a lot and then very firmly number two is Pinterest and then number three is whatever. Really? Absolutely. Uh, so. Yeah. It just the uh, so, I guess I you're suggesting that travel bloggers should start paying attention to Pinterest. <laughs> I most of them are. Oh, you'll see. There's yeah. tons of Facebook groups and whatnot that are all about uh, Pinterest. You know. See, I've been living under a rock. In fact, it's in a rock in Africa <laughs> for the last five years. So I've lost the touch with all these little well, details. Well, the, the great part about Pinterest is you don't. You know, for for Instagram, I physically have to do it. Uh, with Pinterest, you can farm that out. You know, you can, you someone else from a completely different Pinterest account could post pins for your site. So it doesn't have to be you doing the work necessarily. You could hire a VA or something to, to do most of it. I guess. Um, all right. Well, so basically your bottom line is get, get involved in Pinterest if you want to kind of spread the word of whatever you're blogging if, if about. If you want to drive traffic to your website, yeah, I would say you pretty much yeah. have to be doing the Pinterest stuff. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'll keep that in mind for the next year. What about your travel pet peeves? Uh, I know you, you probably don't like TSA and I know you don't like reclining seats. What else? I know Rick Steves had this thing on, he had a short video where he hated like a hotel that put like a dozen pillows on his bed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hate that. Um, I hate not having uh, power outlets on top of the desk where you have to find, mm -hmm. find the outlet and sometimes you end up having to move the whole piece of furniture the TV is mounted on because, uh, you know, the, the room's a bit older. They, they weren't thinking about people plugging things in. Uh, or you have to take the coffee maker off the desk because it takes up all the space and they assume that's the only thing people care about. Yeah, I don't like reclining seats. I never recline my seat unless there's an overnight flight. And you've kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of like everyone's sleeping. That's the only time I'll ever recline my seat on a plane uh, if I'm in economy. Um, TSA is just something you have to suffer through. 
your best bet is to just shut your mouth and deal with it because <laughs> you're not going to win. So, and it's usually I, I'm to a point now. If, you, if you've got TSA pre-check, it's pretty easy to get through all that stuff. Yeah, I have no idea what that is, but I'll I'll look into it. I've heard about it, but I'll... Oh, uh, well, yeah, I mean, but... once you're back in the U.S., uh, global entry, uh, you, you sign up for it, you pay a fee, you go in for an interview at the airport. Is it a one-time fee or an annual fee? Uh, I think it's an annual fee or like two years or something. But you go in for an interview. The interview was really quick. I mean, it was like, have you ever been arrested? No. Okay. Um, they take your fingerprints and then when you go through passport control entering the U S you just go to a kiosk and it takes like two minutes and then you're done. You just don't have to wait in line. And I usually get through passport control so fast that I I'm just stuck waiting for my bag. So, wow. cause there's just okay. nothing. I mean, it's just, there's just nothing to it. And it also gives you Is it just for international flights for coming into the U S global entry. Yeah. Uh, but okay. TSA pre-check, which is part of it. You get to go into the TSA pre-check line, which is usually faster. You don't have to take off your shoes. You don't have to take off your belt. You don't have to take out your laptop. Um, and it's a much faster way to get through security. Okay. And again, you have to pay some fee. That's all part of the Annual global fee. entry thing. Yeah. Got it. Okay. All right. Well, I'll look into these things if I when I eventually come back to America. Um, what about virtual reality? Do you... You know, so something that's been sitting around for about 30 years. Do you think it's ever going to impact the travel industry in the next decade? Nope. Okay. Why is that? We have, we, from the day we were born, live in a 360 degree environment. What we don't do every day of our lives is turn around looking at what's behind us. And if you look at how people behave when they put on a VR headset, that's what the first thing they do, right? They turn their head around, they look up, they look down. And all they're doing is taking in the novelty of having this thing on their face. Um, we, when, when you do storytelling, right, you're asking someone to focus on something, the actor, the presenter, whatever it might be. Uh, the storyteller is saying, look here. This is what's important. So we've had theater in the round for thousands of years, right? I think the Greeks had it where the audience surrounds the actors. We could have had the opposite of that, where the actors surround the audience and the audience is constantly having to turn around to see what's happening. That would have been the equivalent of VR in ancient Greece. And it's stupid. It makes no sense, right? Making the audience continually turn their heads and turn around to see what someone is saying. And that's what most of the VR gimmick is. It's, it's just look at, look what's behind you. And but what about, let, hold on, let's, let's just say that the VR worlds become so perfectly accurate that you can just fly into a place, you know, like Superman and, and then land into the Forbidden City in Beijing and walk everywhere or jump everywhere and check out every little thing. And it's so realistic that it's because of the fact that you can fly around and jump around, it's actually better than the real reality we have 4k video right now that is amazing and there are things you can get whether it's it's streaming online or stuff that has amazing videos of, of fantastic places around the world shot in 4k and almost nobody watches that so again there's a novelty aspect i'm sure that at trade shows 
There will be places that, that will continue to use VR to like show people stuff. But in terms of like an actual thing that people use, um, there might be some applications. There could be a popular game that comes out. I, I don't discount the possibility of that. But no, it's never going to be a widespread thing uh, because so you have, so you, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you have you to have some you on your face. And you can only do that what for do so mean? long. You have to wear goggles. Oh, I see what you mean. You know? yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. If, if, if they could maybe invent a holodeck, that might be different. But the fact that it's still something on your face, um, yeah. Like I could see a game. I can see some industrial uses, telemedicine or some other very, very niche things like that. But you can go to Best Buy right now, and there are VR goggles that are available, and no one buys them because there's no good apps for them that are available. And at the end of the day, most storytelling, again, it's going to be focusing someone's attention on a thing. There was a 360-degree video I saw on Facebook that someone posted, and it was of some people dancing in a museum, like ballet. And uh, there was so I, I watched the ballet people, then I turned the camera around, and there was nothing else. I'm like, well, why did you shoot this in 360? It's dancers which you could have shot with a normal camera, and then a bunch of walls. Why do I want to look at the walls? What, what was the point of, of shooting it like this? So I think there's a lot of novelty. Uh, and, and, you know, this sort of stuff has been around a while. There's been QuickTime VR and other 360 videos that have been around a while. And, again, it's a novelty. But and it's like, oh, I can actually see, you know, what it looks like across the street from the Forbidden City. Or, you know, because everyone, you always see one view of it, right? You always see the same view of the Taj Mahal. So you can see what it looks like looking backwards. And again, that's a novelty, but most people I just don't think are interested in it. But I think the way you're describing the VR here, you're thinking mostly of kind of a more or less fixed point where you can turn around, look up and down and do 360. But when I'm talking about VR, I'm talking about the ability to actually then explore the Forbidden City and go down even every single nook and cranny, go through all of Beijing for that matter, or all of China eventually, and just see from every single angle, open doors, go behind things, all sorts of stuff, not just being kind of fixed. No, I mean, uh, like I said, we have some great stuff now. No one uses it. If they're going to be doing, first of all, if you can get that sort of view of something to to create that, it's going to have to be something virtual. Because to get video shots of every angle of the Forbidden City, you're going to have to have drones flying around all over the place and stitching it together in weird ways. You're going to see that in World of Warcraft before you're going to see it, you know, using it to fly around the Forbidden City. So that's what I'm saying. It could exist. I could see it maybe maybe taking off in video games, but not for, for travel stuff. Because even travel videos today, I mean, they're not that popular. Um, it has a niche audience, but... Even then, the most popular ones, it, it's the personality of the presenter, I think, more than the pretty pictures of the destination. Right. All right. Well, I, I'm still, I'm still, I guess, more bullish than you about the the possibility of not that I'm, I'm not that I'm thrilled with people giving up physical travel and getting into a real plane and going somewhere, but but I think at some point people are going to uh, really do VR, and I, it's going to. Let me well, and, and let me tell you another reason why. Um, so you're about the same age I am, I, I think. Um, yeah, I'm 1970. Um, 
music used to be a thing that people collected because there was a tangible physical aspect to music. And you could go to record stores and maybe you knew someone that was into a certain band or they had like these rare, you know, oh, this is a European version and you had to go to this record store to get it and it was an import. And there was that element of music, right? Or maybe somebody collected like Grateful Dead concerts or, you know, uh, you know, this is a bootleg from a Beatles studio session. I remember stuff like that in college. Now, music is everywhere, right? It's on Spotify. You don't need to buy anything anymore. It's become universal and ubiquitous. And what's changed is you now are seeing people treating music, uh, they're treating food that way. And I think travel has become that way. So it's a way, it's, it's something that can't be digitized. Um, you, you can't, you know, you're not going to have a Spotify for food. It's a, it's, it has to be a tangible thing. And so people are becoming kind of foodies. There's, the food culture has increased. And you're also seeing, I think, a, an increase in travel as well. And I don't think it's ever going to replace travel any more than, you know, VR is going to replace going to a restaurant. Okay. What about AR? Uh, uh, what's it called? AR is um, enhanced. And that's not enhanced. What's AR again? <laughs> oh, Augmented um, reality. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, if it requires wearing something on your face like Google Glass, it'll be as successful as Google Glass. Um, there are limited uses of it, uh, but I think most of those uses can come from holding a camera or a a smartphone in front of you and, and using the camera for it. Um, I don't think, you know, there's a big backlash that's happening right now with social media and, you know, a backlash towards people constantly looking at their phones. I'm not entirely certain that having a glasses on your face that's constantly getting data is going to be something that even would be desirable. So again, but you think that it could, you think it could be, let's say you hold up your phone and then it gives you that augmented reality by looking through the phone cam, the, the phone camera on your screen. Uh, there could be applications. Yeah. I mean, first of all, it doesn't require any new technology. I mean, you're using what everyone already has. So that's a big plus. So, and it's not like you have to get virtual reality goggles and put them on your face, but let's say you're in a museum and you just point your your camera at a painting and then it pops up a description of the painting. That would be a simple right. application of it. Um, or in, in this is already being done to a limited extent with Google translate where you can hold your phone up to a sign and it will read the sign and translate it. So yeah, I think there's definitely some application for that and uh, some of it already exists. Uh, even to a, a limited extent, it, it isn't quite what people think of it, but even like QR codes, uh, are kind of sort of like that insofar as you can point your camera at something and, and get information. Um, not a very elegant implementation of it, but kind of, sort of. Um, but I could certainly see something like that happening, like I said, with a museum or a street sign or something where you're in a city where you just point your, your phone at something and it'll give you information for it. Okay, so that might pick up even though VR may not. Right. I think they're very different things. Let's shift to the business of travel blogging. I'm curious about these things that, uh, since you have been doing this for what, 12 years now or so? The website will have been up for 12 years next October. So I've been traveling now 11 years. Nice. So what is a common error that you see travel bloggers do? Uh, they do the same thing everybody else does. There are so many bloggers now and I can't tell them apart. I don't know who they are. 
They're all just kind of the same, doing the same thing, writing the same articles. Here's 10 things to do in Paris. You know, great family trips in Tuscany. You know, there's nothing wrong with that kind of article, you know, intrinsically. But if that's all you do, if you have no thoughts and opinions, um, it's kind of boring. And, and I also think that where you travel should be kind of interesting as well, you know. Um, I, I'm guessing the vast, vast majority of travel bloggers have not been to Cameroon. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and one of the advantages when I started, and I, uh, this wasn't something I planned, it just kind of happened. I started traveling in 2007 when I sold my house. Uh, I started in the Pacific. And so I started island hopping, going to kind of oddball places. And I think in hindsight that helped me because it was different. It was interesting. And it kind of set me apart, even though there weren't a lot of bloggers at the time, I was doing something different. And mm. a lot of people, they go on their gap year around the world trip and they're kind of doing the same route, you know, mm. Australia, Bangkok, London, maybe Hong Kong, a stop in India or something like that. But, it, but it's kind of the same thing, right? They're not going to right. East Timor. They're not going to Equatorial Guinea. They're not doing that sort mm. of stuff. And I think, and, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, Australia or Bangkok or any of those places. I've been there. Right? They're, they're fine places. But I do think if you're going to try to make a career out of traveling and, and, and having an audience, you need to do something different and interesting. Right. Yeah. In my case, I focus more on a particular region. I really do a hard, deep dive into it, like Eastern Europe, three and a half years, didn't leave constantly in Eastern Europe for three and Africa five years didn't leave very con very all in kind of thing as opposed to kind of bouncing around as as much and so as a result I get kind of that uh, niche that you're talking about yeah and I definitely think that uh, a lot you know I, I think your travel resume can be thought of as a piece of content or certainly it's something that you can point to to show authority and expertise and a lot of people don't think about that. You know, in theory, you could never leave your house and you could start a travel blog and you could write. And Lord knows there's a lot of writers out there that put together top 10 lists without ever visiting the places. So it could be done, but I don't think anyone's, you know, you may get traffic, but you're not going to get an audience. Where do you, speaking about getting an audience, where do you get the biggest bang for your buck or your time and your effort? Would you say... Instagram, your blog, your podcasts, your guest blogging, your Facebook groups, you got TBEX, you got photography contests, so many different places where you can really put effort and you have put effort into. Uh, where do you find the biggest return measured on two issues? One is the number of new followers and acquiring new followers and people. And then the second is which one is, is more lucrative. So break that down. What do you think? Um, it's changed a lot. It's changed several times and it's changed recently. Um, getting new followers on Instagram has really changed because they've changed their algorithm. And a lot of people I know have just stalled in terms of audience growth. So even though you can get, get engagement on Instagram, uh, it's become very hard to grow your audience. Um, Why is that? I have no idea, by the way, because I, I don't... Algorithmic really stuff. Um, and, and that's the problem. Anytime you've... You know, I put a lot of effort, uh, of emphasis on social media the last several years. And the problem with that is 
you are always reliant on someone else, uh, their platform. So Facebook has become like Facebook fan pages, useless, absolutely useless. Might as well not even have it because uh, they've changed their algorithm so much, which part of me also thinks is the reason Facebook's having so many problems is that they have, you know, so long as, you know, magazines and newspapers could get something from Facebook, they never really attacked them that hard. But when they did the algorithm change at the start of this year, uh, Facebook became absolutely useless because they could get nothing from Facebook. And so they turned on them. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I guess I got lucky because I never did create a Facebook fan page. I've always just had my own personal profile and that's all I have. I don't, I, actually, that's not true. I have a one for my book and, but basically I don't have anything else. And, I, and I've heard this complaint recently, but what happened with Instagram? What did they do differently? Uh, changes to the way the feed, the changes to the way you discover people. Um, so always, who's benefited from the change and what, who's, who's done it, better? It always benefits Instagram, who, which is owned by Facebook. Um, that's, that's really all that matters. And I think what a lot of, um, you know, at least they've been smart. They haven't, you know, slit their own throats like Snapchat has, where they've really hurt themselves. And this has happened what to a lot they of, do? oh, a whole bunch of things. They changed their app, which pissed a bunch of people off. And then they did this thing with Rihanna where somebody ran an ad that was like, you know, punch Rihanna. So she deleted her Snapchat account and they lost like a billion dollars in valuation the next week because a bunch <laughs> of people followed Rihanna. And a lot of these places, it was the influencers. Now, I'm not talking people like me. I'm talking like the Rihannas and the Kim Kardashians that really built the platform. And then once they get to a certain level, they just kind of, they don't care about them anymore. And they don't realize the power that they still have, which is a lot. Mm. Um, and that's it. I saw it happen on Pinterest. Uh, you know, they had a lot of very influential people and they kind of did things that screwed them over. And if, if you want, you know, I think these, these people have to always keep in the back of their mind, MySpace, <laughs> because that can happen yeah. to them. You know, I know it's, it, when a company is at the peak of their power, it's very difficult to think that they could disappear, but if you remember 20 years ago, everyone thought Microsoft was invincible, right? And yep. they're, you know, they're still a pretty big company. They do make a lot of money, but they're not. And before that, it, I, IBM was exactly before yeah. IBM just keeps, you know, they, they only stay in business by laying people off. Um, right. So there's no reason to think that this won't happen to the Facebooks of the world and, and every other company. Uh, it probably will eventually, but Yes. You know, Facebook, I think, is yeah, probably more right for it. Yeah, Facebook will eventually be replaced by some. It doesn't necessarily mean it will go away, just like MySpace is still around, I think. <laughs> but Well, um, it got bought and rechanged, and it's a, it's a music platform or something, but no one uses it. Right. And then uh, and, and IBM is still around, and Microsoft's still around, but they're just, it's been, they've certainly been degraded. So... Getting back to the original question, I mean, where would you, if you're starting travel blogger, starting out in the space, where would you put your eggs at this point, even though recognizing that at any moment that may change? Uh, in my website and growing an email list. Because you control it. Because at least you can control that, yeah. Right. And It's uh, interesting because your answer is exactly what I heard Tim Ferriss say uh, recently. He said something similar, which is basically he's been doubling down and putting a lot of effort trying to build his email list because it's the one thing that he can 
kind of be sure to have, and he can actually move it from provider to provider, uh, email blaster to right. email blaster, like a Weber and go to another place and take it. And I should also, he can't take, I should also add ahead. podcasting because when I meet readers in person, almost the first thing they always mention is my podcast. And in terms of raw numbers of all the things I do, the podcast stuff is not the biggest thing, not by a long shot, not when you look at it compared to Instagram and, and other social platforms, but it has the biggest impact because they hear my voice, they listen to me talk, and uh, they, they get a better feel for who I am through a podcast than you ever will get on a social platform. And I think that deeper engagement is going to become more important in the future than you know, if you think about it, an Instagram like is like the bottom of the barrel when it comes to engagement, right? Mm -hmm. It's a one second button click and that is all, you know, it's something, but it's hard to get less than that. You know, the only thing below right. that is nothing itself. So right. if you think of the time commitment involved, the total cumulative time for getting, let's say 1000 likes on a photo just to make the math easy. You're looking at maybe a thousand, let's say generous, let's say maybe up to 5,000 seconds of attention. Right. And how many seconds are we at so far in this podcast already? You know, exactly. So it takes only a few podcast downloads to equal what thousands of likes on Instagram could be. Right. Interesting. Um, and by the way, you can plug your uh, podcast show because you actually have several, I think. Yeah, I got two and a third I'm about to launch. Um, this Week in Travel. So talk about that. Uh, mm -hmm. Which this we've been doing for nine years now. And as we yeah, like to amazing. point it it's out. Always, it's, always been, it's always been Jen Leo, Chris Christensen, and you. The three of you have been consistent. Yeah, we've never changed the format. Uh, and as we like to point out, it's This Week in Travel, not Every Week in Travel. Because <laughs> it's hard exactly. getting three of us together. So lately, I mean, we do it maybe once a month or, or whenever we can. Um, but it's amazing to me that you guys have stuck with it. I mean, because like, I'm always amazed, like, let's say, like the Rolling Stones or U2, these rock bands that somehow managed to stay with each other through the thick and thin for decades. Um, and in some ways, just coordinating you three people, not that you have all the excitement of a, a rock band, but still just to... To, to, to stick with it consi you know, relatively consistently, it's pretty uh, remarkable. Well, we've never made a dime off the show, ever. Mm -hmm. uh, and I do literally mean a dime. We've made nothing. But And why is that? Why did you guys never decide to do any kind of ads or sponsorship at this point? Because I imagine you get how many listeners, uh, how many downloads do you have nowadays? Oh, not a, not a ton. Um, mm -hmm. It's, I don't know, we get maybe ten to 20,000 a month. Okay. Um, but that's enough to make something. I mean, theoretically, yeah, you but you, you decided you split it three ways and then, yeah. you know, maybe you're covering your costs. It's, it's just not a, what it's really done more than anything else is we've been doing it a long time and we've been able to uh, meet and get to know a lot of influential people in the travel industry. And uh, that's mm -hmm. really been the biggest thing. I think, I think we'd have much better numbers if we recorded more. I mean, 10,000 is what we'll get if we don't record any episodes. <laughs> so if we actually like do an episode, we get more. Um, <laughs> and, and that's been the biggest stumbling block. And it's not the, the primary thing for any of us. You know, Chris has his podcast, which gets right. a lot more traffic. 
yeah. I have a podcast that I was doing with CBS. By the way, it's, it's called Amateur Traveler, by the right. way, for those who don't know. Yeah, so he's doing like a quarter million downloads a month. But right. what he does is his shows are kind of evergreen. So he'll talk right. about a country or a region. And then if you're searching for that, you may come across one of his shows and listen to it. This Week in Travel is not evergreen content. It's, it's, right. it's timely, it's news, and no one has any need to listen to a five-year-old episode of that podcast. That's um, not true, because if you want to listen to, let's say, um, a particular guest that you have, that's, then, then, then that could be relevant. Except nobody actually does. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they just Fair don't. Uh, I, the right. other podcast, which is kind of, I record it when I feel like it, is uh, The Global Travel Conspiracy. That started with CBS. They launched a podcast channel. I thought, oh wow, CBS. You know, they're a they're a notable brand. Uh, they do a lot of radio. They actually have a large radio network. And I thought, oh well, they would be a good you know group to partner with. Eh, turns out they know nothing about podcasting. They did a horrible job. They ended up putting you know they never spoke to me again once the podcast got launched. Uh, they cared more about pro wrestlers and reality show contestants who got podcasts. And eventually I just stopped doing it and because they never sold any ads. And then they gave me the rights. They just gave me all the audio and we reposted it uh, with a new intro, got rid of the ad, you know, the, the stuff that they put in the show. And I relaunched it, but I'm just kind of doing it infrequently when I have someone I want to interview. So it's just, okay. it, it's, it's kind of like and this. That's your second, do you have a third one? Yeah, so I'm just launching that. And that's a totally different thing. It's a monologue show. Uh, and okay. it's not really a travel show. It's a history show. Uh, oh, okay. So you're like a Dan Corwin or whatever that guy's name is. Carlin, yeah. But it's, you know, he'll do a big series on World War One or, or... Genghis Khan. Yeah, stuff like that. This show, every episode is going to be on something totally different. Just random stuff. So to give you an example, the first episode is about the Mona Lisa. Um and it, 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 it was my attempt to answer the question, why is this painting of a basically unknown woman the most famous painting in the world? Why? It is interesting. I just finished reading uh, the biography of, by Walter Isaacson yeah. by, uh, about Da Vinci. I just finished reading it, and I learned a ton about the Mona Lisa that I didn't know. I didn't know that Leonardo was kind of carting this around for about 15, 16, 17 yeah. years of the last... And then when he died, they found it next to his, uh, in his room, I guess. He was still holding on to it, making micro adjustments, changes. He yeah. never did actually deliver it to the person. But the book never actually But yeah, it's a good question. It's like, why it's I, the most sorry, I, I, Right, and I, it, that's right. And I was showing it to Rejoice, my wife, and, and she's from Cameroon. And I was like, she's looking at this and she's like, why is this painting so famous? I'm like, oh, well, well there's an answer. I'm, I'm, it's because it was stolen. Yeah. <laughs> in the early 20th century, it was stolen. And prior to that point, it was known in art circles. It wasn't, you know, it didn't have the, the notoriety it has today. But it was stolen right out of the Louvre. Guy just put it under his coat, walked away with it. Um, and it was missing for three years. And the guy was Italian and brought it back to Italy, tried to sell it, got caught. And when they returned it to the Louvre, it went on this tour through Italy and through France, stopping in all these cities, and tens of thousands of people turned out. And this is how it became the most famous painting in the world. And it became this thing 
the, the whole, you know, it being stolen and everything else. And it got in papers around the world. And then so for a lot of people, this was the only work of art they knew by name or that they, you know, they saw an image of. So whenever someone referenced art, you referenced the Mona Lisa because it was the thing people knew. And the other thing that, that I wanted to do an episode about is I had read a statistic that a quarter of the people that visit the Louvre go to see the Mona Lisa and leave. Right. And in the course of the research for this, I, I read some stuff from the, uh, the guy who runs, who's the, the, the head of the Louvre, and that number is not correct. It's 80%. Really? Yep. They go to the Louvre and they leave. And, you know, being in that room is kind of fascinating. So, so that's the first episode. I'm then going to do one on the pyramids. I'm going to do one on Polynesian navigators. Uh, I'm going to do one on the GPS system and how that works and, and everything that's involved. Because I've often thought if you were to bring someone, say, from 300 years ago to the modern world, what would be the thing that would be the hardest thing to describe to them? I think it would be the GPS system. Because it combines so much stuff. You have to explain rocketry, uh, satellites, electronics, computers, you know, uh, radio waves. You know, all the things that were discovered in the 19th and 20th century all kind of come together in the GPS system. And you, take, you can't take one part out. Relativity is part of it. You have to compensate for relativity with GPS yep. satellites. Um, so, so things like that. It's kind of a show just about, you know, uh, curiosity. And it's not a travel show per se, but a lot of it comes from things I encountered traveling. Interesting. Yeah. And it reminds me of Arthur C. Clarke when you're talking about GPS, when he said that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Right. So I think those, those people from 300 years ago, they, you would, instead of explaining all that stuff that you just talked about, you just say, you know what? It's just magic. <laughs> Well, and the, and the other reason is I've become fascinated lately. Uh, there's been a, a, a growing number of people in the 21st century who believe the earth is flat. Yeah. And it's happened because of YouTube where people put these videos and they see the videos and they believe it. And so there's a growing <laughs> flat earth movement. And there's been some NBA stars and other people who, and it's, it's an easy thing to prove, Right. But right. they just can't. It's like, well, it doesn't look round. And that's basically <laughs> their evidence, right? But At that, least not in Texas. <laughs> and I think the, the reason for that is I'm a big believer that there's only two things you need to teach a child. You need to teach them how to read. And you need to teach them to be curious. Because if they're curious and they can read, they can learn a lot of stuff themselves. That, that's basically what I did growing up. And, and kind of right. what I've still done throughout my whole life. Uh, and if you're not curious, you can put someone in a classroom, but they're not going to learn anything. They don't care. They don't want to be there. Uh, and, and we have a, a lot, a lot, a lot of people in our society who are like that. They went through the motions. They may have a degree. They may have gone to college. They don't know shit. And right. I think that curiosity is, is not something that's bound by intelligence or education. You know, my dad never went to college, but, you know, he would watch stuff on the Discovery Channel or he'd subscribe to National Geographic. and He was interested in how things work. And so that, I think, is is one of the things I really want to address with that podcast. 
I agree with you 100%. Uh, just interesting from a personal level. My father didn't graduate from college. Um, he was a college dropout. My mom dropped out of high school. Um, and yet, especially my mom, my mom is super, super cur- curious person. She's always, when she doesn't know a word, she'll run to the dictionary. She'll look up things. She's constantly curious. And it's and I, I respect that uh, so much more than if you went to Harvard or whatever. Um, it's it's a more... Uh, more telling, I think, if you're a curious person. What's the name of the podcast going to be? Uh, Everything Everywhere. Uh, okay. <laughs> I purposely did not use that as the name of any of my previous shows because I wanted to save it. Uh, I didn't want to use it with CPS because uh, I didn't want them to have any claim on the name. Uh, but, you know, one of the smart things I did when I started is I picked a name for my website that was a completely open-ended and generic. You know, it wasn't backpacking Gary trip around the world or something like that. Um, right. it was just open-ended so I can really talk about whatever I want. And that is exactly what I intend to do. Got it. So then this will be, what about the global travel conspiracy? You'll keep that going, I guess. Yeah. Infrequently, uh, when I find guests that I want to mm-hmm. talk to, and it may not even be travel related, uh, but just people I find interesting and an excuse to, to interview them. Um, I thought of considering just, you know, putting in an email and asking like Neil deGrasse Tyson to get on the show. Because I've seen a lot of interviews with him and everyone asks him the same questions. And right. like, I want to ask him, so like, okay, you're the head of the Rose Planetarium. Do you do research anymore? <laughs> right. I, I, I don't <laughs> think he does because he's in a unique position where he has become the voice of, in the face of science, right? right. Carl Sagan used to have that role. Um, and there's been other people, I think, that have had that role. And that's kind of his role now is he's... He, he is the public face that represents kind of all of science. And that's kind of a job yes. in and of itself, just explaining right. how the world works. I remember one time, I, I listened to uh, several things that Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about, and I remember one time he had a guest on, and I can't remember now, in fact, the, the, the fact that the guest said, and Neil was like, huh, really? I didn't know that. And yet I was like, I know that. How can you not know that, Neil? I guess you're not studying your books as much as you, you should because he's doing so much evangelizing uh, about science in general. And so maybe he's, he sometimes falls behind on some of the research just because he's repeating answers to the same questions. <laughs> but yeah, it just, it, it, it's basically, an, like I said, an excuse for me to interview uh, people I want. So it, it's there. Yeah. And uh, there are people that still discover it because they're still writing me saying, you know, I just listened to such and such show. Um, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so that that's kind of the plan. So and like Dan Carlin, who does hardcore history, he's not a historian. Uh, and I don't think you are either. Correct? No. Uh, when I was in college, uh, I triple majored in math, economics and political science. And then I went back after I sold my company and I studied uh, geology and geophysics. So, but, so you now you're talking. You read a lot, Gary. What percentage of the stuff you read is nonfiction? All. <laughs> okay. <laughs> with with some exceptions, um, when there's a new Dune book that comes out, I read that. And the mm-hmm. new Dune books are written by uh, Frank Herbert's son, and they're not really that good. Yeah. But I feel like I have to read them because I've read everything <laughs> else. Uh, several times. Um, I'll read the new Game of Thrones book when it comes out because I've read all those. Mm-hmm. That's that's about it. I don't I don't read like normal popular fiction and, and, and things like that. It's all nonfiction, and it's all and the nonfiction is all over the place. Yeah, 
So okay. uh, I just finished, I read the Walter Isaacson book about Da Vinci that you read. Uh, today mm -hmm. I just started reading a book about uh, German-American heritage because, as you may guess by my last name, uh, I have German ancestry. And German-Americans are the largest ethnic group in the United States. Yet we have no day of celebration. There's no cultural things. There's not German pride festivals. Uh, and this all had to do with World War One, and a lot of people don't know there were like 30 Germans lynched during World War One. Um, there was a lot of German violence. There were people, stri families stripped of their kids, um, and it, German people sometimes changed their name, um, and it became unfashionable very quick uh, being German. And World War Two didn't help. So it, it's kind of this hidden ethnic group. Um, and I've, and I've even talked to the German tourism board about this, that, you know, you have a lot of people that go back to like Ireland and Italy to go back to the old country and Germans never do that. Uh, that's fascinating. So yeah, I'm just By curious way, about it. So, okay. So we completely went off topic uh, <laughs> because we were talking way back when about the biggest bang for your buck for the new followers and, and, and most lucrative. Um, we were talking, I think we, you had mentioned basically the takeaway was work on your website, your blog, your and your email list. And that's your big thing because the other things are more vulnerable to the vagaries of of the social media algorithm changes. Is that pretty much a good summary about that? Yeah, I'm not saying you shouldn't be on social media. I'm just saying it's a very different landscape today than it was five years or ten years ago. And do you do Snapchat? Nope, never did it because I am an adult. Okay. Um, literally Snapchat, the demographics for Snapchat are such that it was not only just very, very young, but when a lot of the data I saw said when people reach the age of 25, they stop using it because the way you talk to your friends when you're in high school and college, like showing them pictures and, you know, making goofy faces, uh, you don't do that as an adult. You don't do that with people, you know, from work. And so people would just stop using it. So it wasn't something that they started using and then it, it, it grew with them. It wasn't Led Zeppelin. It was Sean Cassidy. Got it. If I can explain it in musical terms. Um, yeah, I understand. Yeah. And so then what about lucrative wise? Uh, where do you kind of see out of all those groups and, you know, the podcast, you have the blog, the Facebook groups, the T-Bex. Uh, for me, it's mostly contest. brand ambassadorships. And that okay. comes from all those things together. Uh, right. But over the last year, I've been kind of redoing my whole website and rebuilding the business from the ground up because I never wrote things with an eye towards SEO. I never did a lot of those generic things to do posts. And... So I get far less traffic on my website than a lot of people that have been doing this the same amount of time I am because I never went down that route. So I've been, but by the, by the same token, I should add from a strict technical SEO standpoint, I have a better link profile than all, but maybe one or two travel bloggers because I have links from, you know, many of the top websites, CNN. not just that, yeah. but like Adobe, UNESCO, mm. the New York times, um, a lot of these, these high profile places. So it's been 
kind of restarting things. And so I've actually started doing display advertising in the last six months. I never did that before. Uh, I'm doing affiliate ads now. I've never did that before. Uh, and trying to, to actually start doing passive income from my website. Okay, so you are doing display ads uh, after now a I decade. Now I am. A decade yeah. of, okay. So that may, that may boost up a little bit of, of the revenue. So tell us a little bit about those. Uh, those I know you did Gap Adventures. You were an ambassador there. You did TripIt, I think, and you did uh, that well, Scotty Vest. Yeah, Gap Adventures is now called G Adventures. They actually changed their name a couple of years ago. That's right. Um, yeah, they had a lawsuit with the Gap clothing store because somehow right. it was confusing buying khakis and <laughs> going to Antarctica. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so I actually, I, I worked with G from 2010 to 2016. And then they stopped their influencer program and then they started it up again this month. So I'm working with them again. Um, okay. So... So yeah, and, and a lot of the, the other things come and go. Um, I think people are companies are wising up to the fact that long-term relationships work better than short-term campaigns do. And a lot of places, especially if you're using an, an agency, they think in terms of campaigns. It's like, okay, we have this amount of time and we're going to get all these people and everyone send out one tweet and one Instagram post and that's our campaign. Uh, that really doesn't work very well. And it doesn't work very well, especially, you know, from from an influencer standpoint, I don't think I want to be promoting a bajillion products uh, because it makes you look like a sellout and you're giving your readers. Yeah, you're giving your readers whiplash and you want to be able to associate yourself with something, you know, a long term product. Um, This might be a really dated analogy, but Bob Hope always used to do specials on TV. I don't know if you remember those. Um, I do. I do. Okay. Do you remember the company that sponsored him? No clue. Texaco. Um, hmm. Texaco always sponsored Bob Hope. And I, I just I always remember that because, and they did it for decades. They always sponsored uh, Bob Hope. And there's certain, you know, things like that, that I think that if, if you establish that link with someone over the long term, uh, can be far more effective. And not to mention, it's just marketing 101. Uh, you need to tell people a message several times before it sinks in. And so just mentioning something once on social media is not very effective. You need to say it again so what did, and again and again and again and again. Right. What are your obligations that you have to G Adventures, for example? Um, there are not really a lot of obligations. You know, I'll travel with them. I'm going on a trip in, I think, May to uh, hmm. the Baltics. I've never been there, so I'll be going to Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. And then I may on my own, once I'm there, do like a, they have that like two to three day trip you can do to St. Petersburg without a visa. Right. Uh, so I might do that. You'll love, by the way, all those places are fantastic. And I might go to Belarus too, because I've never been there. And they just instituted a visa on arrival if you fly in. So what I might do is go a few days early from Lithuania, flying to Belarus, because I don't need the visa, do a couple things there. I think there's a World Heritage Site within distance. Um, and, you know, do the tour. And then at the end of the tour from Helsinki, go to St. Petersburg, 
So I haven't figured it out. But, you know, in the course of doing that, you post stuff on Instagram and whatnot, and you do some blog posts. And uh, I've done public speaking for them in the past. Um, you know, we had something planned. I don't know if it'll come about. of Because I've been to every continent with G Adventures on their tours to do like an evening presentation, you know, showing my photography and telling stories of, of the places I've been with them. Um, maybe doing it for their suppliers or for some of their uh, resellers like travel agents and stuff. So we'll see. Now, so you're basically saying that the sponsors are, have been a, one of your best revenue sources for the last few years. Is that fair to say, or <laughs> yeah. would you say that you get more? Um, okay. You know what? And that's to but, be honest is one of the reasons why I didn't focus on other forms of revenue is because I was in a great position of being able to get these uh, brand ambassadorships where very few bloggers were able to do that. So because I had uh, a pretty good source of revenue coming from this, I didn't have to focus on display advertising, affiliate income, and all the other things that a lot of other bloggers have done. What's interesting is that you don't seem to have to do a whole lot for it. In other words, you just have to show up to a trip to the Baltic. How hard is that? Uh, no, there's some promotional things I have to do as well. Uh, and, you know, I'm always willing to go above and beyond for certain things if they have a request from me. And because they... Like what? Uh, if media promotions, things like that, because, you know, that's a win-win. I'm always willing to, to do interviews. And uh, mm -hmm. if I just came back from a trip and, you know, maybe doing a radio or television spot uh, where I mentioned, the you know, it, you know, I went on a G-Adventures trip to this place... Uh, that works for them as well. That's some free exposure. Right. And from a travel standpoint, so Bruce Poontip, who's the, the founder and owner of G Adventures, uh, he does a lot of media stuff. He's published several books, uh, does a lot of public speaking. And he talks a lot about the company. You know, they do a lot of uh, social enterprise work, uh, helping local people create businesses, stuff like that. They talk about their corporate culture. I'm not really the person to speak about that because I don't work for the company. Um, but from a travel perspective, talking about the trips and the tours and the destinations, I think that's what I and the other influencers in the program are probably more uniquely suited for doing. Okay. Now, what about if, let me, let me just shift to another question about Forbes, let's say, just to pick an, an example, let's say if they asked you to write seven articles a month, give you 500 bucks for it, would you do it or would you rather take those seven articles, throw them across the web or would you put them all, all you know, five of them on your blog, two of them guest posting? How would you kind of, there's only so many blog posts you can write per month and so, and there's a certain value that you would attribute to those blog posts. How, how would you, what would be your logic in your thinking? I'd probably do it for a while, especially if I could put a link in the articles, um, mm -hmm. because that, you know, uh, from Forbes, it can help the website, you know, and I think that's mm -hmm. some of the things a lot of people don't realize is that getting a link from a high profile site like that can actually be more valuable than the money, which is not to right. say you're not going to take the money, but, um, especially if it's a, it's a deep link to something that you can rank for, uh, in the long run, that could be more lucrative than, uh, the money they pay you. Uh, overall, I think you want to be diverse in where people find you. So, you know, if you could, if you could if, get a columnist gig with Forbes, I think that would be a good thing because then you could, there's a certain amount of social proof in being able to say, I'm a columnist with Forbes. 
But overall, if it was just kind of general freelance stuff, I'd spread it around. Okay. So, and, and you would take those, let's say 10 or seven blog posts, you'd put most of them on your own website? It depends on what the post is. If it's an informative mm -hmm. post that people are searching on, then I would definitely want it on my website. If it's commentary mm -hmm. or opinion, then... Or news. Yeah, I'm not a news person. I'm not the... Okay. You know, that, that's the big difference, I think, between a lot of journalists and bloggers. I'm not looking for a scoop. I'm not looking for an angle. Uh, a lot of it is my thought and opinion. And so that, that, you know, in a traditional sense, that would make me a columnist probably more than anything else. What about, what do you take about the, the mantra that I always hear about, you know, got to engage with your, engage, engage, engage with your readers and reply to every tweet and reply to every comment. Uh, part of me just like, this is just too much. What do you think? Uh, it depends on what the comment is. So if you go to my Instagram account, I do not comment. I do not reply to most comments because most of the comments are just very nice, great photo. Wow. Right. Uh, they're, they're not saying anything. You know, I can just go, thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone, but that just gets repetitive. If somebody has an actual question, like, where did you take this photo? What time of day was it? What kind of lens did you use? I'll answer that. Um, but not... I'm not necessarily going to acknowledge every interaction someone has uh, unless it's something legitimate. What places out of all, you've been to about 120 countries so far, roughly? Uh, UN countries, yeah, but I've been to a lot of like yeah. territories, territories and stuff. Yeah. So what, has, what comes, I know, you, I know you like St. Uh, was it St. George Island? No, Saint, South Georgia. Georgia Island? South Georgia. South Georgia Island. Yeah. Thank you. I know you really love that place. What other two, three places come to mind? I'm a big fan of Northern Canada and Alaska. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the Arctic is, uh, you know, a very under-touristed place. A lot of people don't even think about it. You know, in the summer, if you live in the United States, you can get in a car and drive to the Arctic Circle. Most people don't know that or they don't think about that, but you can do it. Yeah. And it, it's just not something that most people would think to do. Uh, there are some fantastic national parks in Canada that nobody goes to. Canadians don't even know about it um, because they're, they're pretty hard to get to, to be honest, and they're kind of expensive. But they are some of the best parks in the world, and nobody knows about them. Um, yeah. Nahani National Park in the Northwest Territories, maybe the best national park on the planet. Uh, Torngat Mountains National Park in northern Labrador has some of the best fjords in the world. And most people probably aren't even aware that there are fjords in North America. Um, right. But places like that, um, that are just, you know, gates of the Arctic National Park in Alaska. You know, the only way you're getting to these places is basically by float plane. And uh, Torngats you can actually get to by ship. But uh, there's a lot of fantastic places out there that people just don't know about. Speaking about places that everybody knows about, but nobody gets to go to, how about the moon and Mars? If it costs like 10,000 bucks to go there, would you go there? Or, and would you live there? Would I live there? No. Uh, there's nothing how about there. just a visit? Yeah. And what, 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 okay. I mean, assuming I can come back, it's not one of these one-way death trips or something. <laughs> um, I, I have no desire to martyr myself for that. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think that'd be really interesting. 
uh, mm-hmm. assuming that was you know something that that was doable. Um, yeah, I don't know why. What would be the price point that would be like? Okay, this is where I'm willing to like bank the farm. Would it be a hundred thousand dollars? Fifty thousand dollars. I mean, fifty thousand dollars is for Everest. Well, so you, you, you got to think that maybe half a million bucks. You know, going to the South Pole is going to cost you about seventy to eighty thousand dollars. Going wow, to the North Pole is going to cost you about ten to twenty-five thousand mm-hmm. dollars, uh, depending on how and what time of year you do it. So, put it in that kind of perspective. I mean, there are people right now, or you know, in the past, who have gone into space and they've paid for it, and they paid twenty million bucks, yeah, I think, tens of right? millions of dollars. So, yeah, yeah I mean. I think I think it was uh, Dennis Tito was the first guy, and I think he spent twenty million dollars gave it to the Soviets or the Russians. Um, you know, the thing is, you know, what do you do when you're there? I mean, if you look at what a lot of the Apollo astronauts did, they didn't go that far. I mean, the Apollo seventeen guys did, but they were there for science; they were on a mission. So you go there, and then, and then what? I mean, you, you can say you were you on play the golf. You go, you go in your rover? <laughs> yeah, you do a bunch of things that are like, oh, my God, I'm in 1.6G. Look how high I can jump, you know? And mm-hmm. I suppose it's kind of like the moon equivalent of floating in the Dead Sea or something like that. Right. Um, yeah, so it would be interesting. I don't know what the price point would be. Um, but, yeah, you're probably looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of tens of thousands of dollars. I think it's probably hundreds of thousands of dollars at this point. Oh, I, well, for zero dollars because it's just not possible. Nobody can go to the moon right now. Um, well, it's it's going to be. I mean, what's his name? The uh, Jeff Bezos was talking about coming up with a rocket ship that just doesn't land on the moon, but just does a flyby. Yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, they could certainly do that, but man, that's a big undertaking. And I realize technology has advanced a lot, but we spent a lot of money on the Apollo program, and we're a long ways off from. Uh, having that be a regular tourist thing that people could do because that's still a week-long trip and a lot can go wrong and you're you're stuck in a very small space you know with the smells and whatnot of a lot of people and I'll be shocked well I think in his case it's just going to be I think he says it's it's going to be just two people and it's going to happen in less than five years that's what Bezos says so stay tuned so, yeah, two people who are, like, you know, trained and they do it just to, to show that they no, can tourists. do it. <clears throat> no. These are two tourists. Paying tourists will go in a capsule that will just make a go to the moon, go around the backside, I guess, and come back to Earth and land. Anyway, I understand your skepticism. So, Gary, uh, tell us about this book that has been kind of lingering in the background for a while now. What can we expect? That's a really good question. Uh, <laughs> part of it is just focusing on the book and not other stuff uh, and not bothering to travel. So I've come up with a couple different ideas and I keep changing my mind as to what I want to do. And I've kind of changed my mind again. Um, because you know, when you do a book, it's I'm thinking of it kind of holistically and like what it's going to do for my business and speaking opportunities and things like that. So what I'm leaning to right now is some sort of um, book that basically is kind of a self-help book 
and really just kind of encouraging people to travel and the benefits of travel. And no idea when that could come out in the next five years, maybe? I, who knows? Where can people find you? Everything everywhere? Everything-everywhere.com or just search for my name or just search Gary and travel. And I am the easiest person in the world to find online. Uh, any combination of that, you'll probably figure out where I am. I think Kim Kardashian might be easier. You got to be able to spell Kardashian. <laughs> <laughs> and that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel technology and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on the latest episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember F Tapon. That's my first initial and my last name. F Tapon is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. Here's one last reason to remember F Tapon. If you like what I do and want to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash, yep, you guessed it, ftapon. That's where you can pick up some sweet rewards for as little as $1 a month. And remember, subscribing to the WanderLearn podcast helps, but downloading each episode helps even more. Please share the podcast, review it, and sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. This show was edited by Rejoice Tapon. The music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon, encouraging you to wander and learn. <laughs>